Let's go to the ninth chapter of the gospel according to Luke for the message today. If your ears, mind, and heart are attuned to the word of God today, then this message, this passage of scripture should challenge and convict you deeply. Perhaps more than any other truth of God's word, this truth is convicting. It should be a truth that each of us hear and respond to with self-examination to see if what Jesus says should be is in our lives. And notice I use personal pronouns because it's not just for you, it's for me. There's been a lot of conviction as I've studied Luke chapter 9 over the past week. Likely you've heard the phrase, terms of surrender. When two nations are at war, or just two opposing forces are engaged in warfare, there comes a time when one force or nation realizes that they're not winning this fight. And so they will proverbially or literally wave the white flag of surrender. They may come to the table with some terms of surrender, but often it's the winning side that gets to decide what the terms of surrender will be. Throughout history, when wars have been fought and surrenders have been made, we can now read historically what the terms of surrender were. Our, our guest evangelist last week spoke about the Smithsonian Institute and how they have on display the chairs and the side table that were set in by Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee when the Civil War came to a conclusion. That meeting was precipitated by a messenger being set by the Confederate Army into the camp of a well-known general, not so much for his involvement in the Civil War, but for an event that came later in history by the name of General Custard. You know his name, don't you? Custer's Last Stand. But it had nothing to do with the Civil War, but he was involved in the Civil War. And when the message reached him that General Lee wanted to meet with General Grant to talk over the terms of surrender, General Custer responded and said, there will be no terms but unconditional surrender. What does that mean? It essentially means that that side doesn't have any say in the matter. That they will willingly submit to whatever the terms are as set forth by the other side. And I thought it was ironic 
that our guest evangelist, Brother Johnson, reminded us during homecoming last week that our greatest need as a church is to what? Do you remember? To make disciples. He reminded us that the reason we are here The reason we exist as a church in this community is to make disciples. And if you were here, I'm sure you were challenged by that thought as I was. It was ironic, especially knowing the passage that we were coming to in Luke today. But as I thought about it, both him reminding us that that's our greatest need as a church... And knowing that we were coming to this portion of Luke chapter 9, this thought came to my mind. I cannot effectively make disciples of Jesus if I am not a committed disciple myself. I cannot effectively and fruitfully make disciples of Jesus if I am not myself a fully committed follower of Jesus. Yes, our greatest need in ministry is to make disciples. That should be true corporately. That should be true on a personal level. But doing it effectively is predicated on me being a committed disciple myself. So tell me, would you? Tell me what being a committed disciple looks like. I've not done it today, but, but I, I, I could have brought in just blank sheets of paper and had them ready for you and asked you to go ahead and jot down what you think the characteristics or the qualities of a committed disciple of Jesus would be. And I'd be interested to look at them or to hear from you what you think what i think being a committed disciple of jesus looks like we might talk about things like well daily spending time in the word and prayer and um being in church uh, regularly on a faithful basis uh, uh giving to the church doing these good things we we might give some different ideas to describe what being a committed disciple of jesus looks like what what would you say The reality is, it's not something that we have to guess at or wonder about. Here in Luke 9, Jesus told us what discipleship looks like. If I can say it this way, he provided us with the terms of discipleship. Look with me, if you would, at Luke chapter 9. We're going to start in verses 18 through 22, where we discover the opening to the terms of discipleship. Luke 9, beginning in verse 18, And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? They answering said, John the Baptist. Some say Elias, 
And others say that one of the old prophets has risen again. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, The Christ of God. And he, Jesus, straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. As we jump into Luke chapter 9, Jesus is alone praying. He is spending time with his father when the disciples come and joined him. And when they did, Jesus questioned them. Whom say the people that I am? Remember, they are going all over the place. They're ministering to people. Jesus is, is doing miracles. He's teaching them. The disciples themselves have already gone on their little evangelistic journey throughout the region they have healed people. They have taught people. They have ministered to people. And Jesus wants to hear from his disciples, who do the people, all these that we're ministering to, whom do they say that I am? And they responded by telling Jesus some different ideas. Some say you're, you're John the Baptist. You're, you're just like him. Some say you're Elias. That is Elijah the the great prophet of the Old Testament. You are Elijah, come back from God to, to do a great work. And some said, one of the other prophets is risen again and is here among us. And then Jesus turns it to them and he says, well, what about you? Okay, that's what the people say. What do you say? Peter responded, you're the Christ. The anointed one, the sent one, the promised one, the prophesied one, the Messiah. You're the, that one of God come from him, sent by him to do his work. There's a lot packed into that statement that Peter gave. Among other things, it means, Jesus, you're the seed of the woman who would destroy the serpent. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It meant the seed of Abraham, through whom all the families of the world would be blessed. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Jesus, you are the fulfillment of the law of God. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus, you are the greater son of David who will reign forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus, God, you're not just come from God, you are God. Isaiah 7, 14, Isaiah 9, 6, Luke 1, verse 35. You are God who as the Son of God is the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 42, verse 1, who would give his life, Isaiah chapter 53. All of that, among other truths, are wrapped up in what Peter said, 
You are the Christ of God. Now pay attention to the clear difference. Jesus asked them, Whom do the people say that I am? None of them said, Well, you know, Jesus, we've heard people say you're the Christ. Did, did you catch that? All the people they're healing, all their people they're teaching, the disciples don't say, you know, we've heard people say you're the Messiah. They're saying some good things. You're, you're just like John the Baptist. You're, you're Elijah, come back from God. You're one of the prophets risen from the dead. But they did not report that anyone out there said you're the Christ of God, but they, the disciples, did. And even before we get to verse 23, I see the first term of discipleship right here, and it's this, cognizance of the Lord. A recognition of who Jesus is. Now think about this. The crowd out there, was willing to concede some nice things about Jesus. He's a great teacher. He's a good guy. He, he's a prophet. Wow, he does some amazing things. He's got some good ideas. Sounds a lot like a lot of people out there in our world today you know the reality is as you rub shoulders with people out in the world there are not too many people who have major problems with jesus there aren't too many people who just have a massive hatred of jesus there's a lot of people out there in the world that you rub shoulders with who are willing to concede, yeah, he was a good guy. I, I even think he did some, some really great things. If everyone would live the way he, he taught, you know, love others and be kind and do good and be gracious and merciful, the world would be such a better, much better place. He, he had some really good teachings. Yeah, I, I try to live by some of what he said. There are people out there who are willing to concede some nice things about Jesus. But paying Jesus compliments doesn't equal discipleship. Liking some things about Jesus doesn't make one a disciple of Jesus. And a lot of people out there today are willing to concede those nice things. There are a lot of people, a lot of denominations, a lot of religions who are willing to say nice things about Jesus but stop short of conceding who he really is. There are a lot of religions out there today that would not even fall under the umbrella of the Christian religion who have no problems with Jesus. Islam has no problems with Jesus. Mormonism has no problems with Jesus. 
Jehovah's Witness have no problems with Jesus. I'm not saying they teach everything right, but they're, they're willing to concede he's a nice guy. They're willing to concede, yeah, he is a prophet. They may even be willing to concede he died and rose again, but they stop short of conceding who he really is. Do you believe who Jesus is? He's not just a man. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a, a, someone who could, who could do some pretty amazing things. He, he, wasn't, a, he wasn't a trickster. He, he, he didn't just you know, deceive people with these, like, these uh, tricks of magic that, that made it seem like he was doing some amazing things. It wasn't just like, well, he had the power of God. No, Jesus was and is God. He was and is and always will be God incarnate, God in flesh, who laid down his life for the sins of the whole world, was buried and rose again three days later. That is who he is. And we're like good with that. Pastor, amen. Yes, I believe that's who Jesus is. Well, can I tell you, friend, that that's great. But admitting who he is is just a start. There has to be so much more than just confession of that with the lips. Jesus, as he preached the Sermon on the Plain back in Luke chapter 6, that we looked at in three messages called God's Kingdom Agenda questioned the people who paid him lip service but did not produce fruit when he said this in Luke 6 46 and why call ye me Lord Lord and do not the things which I say yes I believe Jesus is God yes I believe he he's God incarnate come in the flesh yes I believe he died was buried and rose again that's great but that is just the start Confession of those realities with the lips without the fruit of it in the life is simply not sufficient to equal discipleship. Discipleship is not just confession, it's conduct. Discipleship isn't just profession, it's practice. It's not just learning, it's living. It's not just an experience with Jesus. It is my life being an expression of Jesus. It's not just being influenced by Jesus. It's influencing others for Jesus. That is discipleship. We can do all the confessing and professing and learning and experiencing and being influenced. But if we're not also adding to it the conduct, the practice, the living, the expression, the influencing others for Jesus, then friends, that doesn't equal discipleship. That's falling short of being a fully committed follower of Jesus. Kyle Eidelman is the pastor of a large church in Kentucky. He wrote a book with the title, Not a Fan. The whole premise of the book is 
of, as a pastor, him saying, I'm not a fan of Jesus. You say, why would he say that? What led to him writing this book was when, as he was approaching Easter Sunday, he was sitting in the empty auditorium of their church on a Thursday afternoon, and he was praying about and considering what he would preach on Easter Sunday, and transparently, like all pastors, he, he was thinking about those people who might show up on Easter, who only show up on Easter and Christmas, and what can I say? How can I wow them so that it will inspire them to come back next week? And he was thinking through different passages of Scripture, and he was struggling to come up with any type of inspiration. As he sat there in the empty auditorium looking around, he said, as I was seeking for that inspiration, instead of inspiration, I just gained more perspiration. I was just struggling over what can I do and what can I say. He looked and saw the, empty bi the, the Bible sitting in the empty seat next to him. He picked up the Bible, and he, he expresses that, Kind of like um, throwing the dice or drawing straw. He thought, well, maybe if I just open my Bible and throw my finger in there, the inspiration will come. And then this thought came to mind. What did Jesus do when he had a crowd? What did Jesus preach when there was a multitude of people around him? As, as he went through some different passages of scriptures, he thought through... He came to this realization often when Jesus had a crowd the message he preached would be more likely to drive people away than draw them and on that Easter Sunday morning he stood before his congregation and he shared with them that he was convicted by what had happened earlier in the week and he shared this with his church. I'm sorry for sometimes selling Jesus cheap and watering down the gospel in hopes that more of you would fill these seats. And he followed up with the sermon, Not a Fan, based on Luke 9, 23. And he encouraged his people to honestly ask themselves, Am I a fan or a follower of Jesus? You see, the dictionary defines a fan as an enthusiastic admirer. Think of that sports team that you love, that you're a fan of. You pay attention to the games, you know when they're playing, you know who they're playing, you know what the score was afterward, and depending on how the game went, you'll either be excited or you will be depressed. You're a fan. You wear the jersey, you wear the hat. When it's casual day at work, you make sure you represent you're a fan. And I wonder, as Pastor Eidelman did for himself and for his church, I wonder for myself if I'm not a follower but simply a fan. Tell me for yourself, are you a fan or a follower of Jesus? Discipleship necessitates cognizant of the, cognizance of the Lord that understands who he is. He's the Christ of God, as Peter said. Jesus himself, in verse number 21, called himself the Son of Man. It's the 
the identification he most often gave and used of himself, but it had very deep Old Testament roots, messianic roots in prophecy. It was another representation that he was the promised one of God. But it's also a recognition of what he did. Jesus used four verbs to describe, at that point, what he would do. He said he must suffer. See the prophecy of Psalm 22 in Isaiah 53, that he would be rejected. See the prophecy of Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, that he would be slain. That was his purpose before the world even came to be, according to Revelation 13, verse 8. And he would be, now for us, was raised to life. When you know who he is, And what he's done, when it means something to you, following him is the natural response. And I don't mean by that that it just happens, but it's the appropriate response of someone who has come to recognize who Jesus is and what he's done. Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done for you? Let me ask you this. If there was a person in your life who absolutely laid everything down for you. I mean, they they didn't just, you know, get you a place to stay. They went and lived on the street so you could live in their mansion. They walked everywhere they went because they gave you their cars. They lived penniless because they signed all of their bank account investments and monies over to you. They went hungry because they gave you their full cupboards. They went with only one one item of clothing because they left everything in their closet for you when they moved out so you could move in. And in response, you wrote a little thank you note. Thanks. Have a great life. And you might say hello in passing. You might... You might give a little smile when you think about how much they did for you, what they gave up for you. And that was the extent of it. What would you think about a person who responded to such great sacrificial gifts that way? And yet, Could it be that that is exactly the way that we have and we do respond to Jesus? We give him a little bit of our time. We give him a little bit of our attention. We give him a little bit of our thoughts. We give him a little bit of our lives. We give him a little bit of what we have to offer. If that's our response to Jesus wouldn't you and I have to admit 
that we've fallen short of being followers and maybe we're just fans. Then let's move on. Not only cognizance of the Lord, but think about this term of discipleship, commitment of your life. Look at verses 23 through 27. The Bible declares, and he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. What is man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Tell me, what, what stands out about this portion of the text? What, what stands out to you? As I look at this portion of the text, the first thing that I know is the open invitation that Jesus gave. Notice how verse 23 begins, if what? Any man, anyone. Now listen to me and don't miss this truth. Anybody has the potential to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. Think about that. You've probably heard the illustration before, and I forget of which, uh, which pastor or evangelist it's testified that he heard another pastor or preacher say this, and then he gave his life to the Lord. But the statement was made, the, the world has yet to see what God can do with someone who is completely committed to him, who's totally dedicated. This passage, Jesus says, if any man, anybody has the potential to be a fully committed follower of Jesus, that means everybody here today, everybody watching or listening by way of the internet stream, wherever you may be, whoever you may be, you have the potential to be a fully committed follower of Jesus. The reality that he blazed the way stands out to me. If any man will come after me, if any man will follow me, he doesn't leave us to blaze a new path. He doesn't leave us to figure out a way that's never been walked before. He has blazed the trail for us. It's coming after him. It's following him. And then the totality of commitment stands out to me. Think about what Jesus shares here. Discipleship demands some things. Number one, discipleship demands desire. Notice, if any man will come. So often we read that just like that, will come. Will is, is looked at, it's read as an auxiliary verb, a, a helping verb in a sense to come, but it's not. It's a separate construction. It's the word that is defined as desire, volition what one wills to do or wants to do. So discipleship demands desire. 
the desire to follow Jesus above everything else. The desire to please Jesus above everything else. The desire to go where he goes, to do what he would have me do above everything else. Discipleship demands not only desire, but deference daily. An attitude of deferring to him in everything. If any man will come after me. But I have my own dreams. I have my own desires. I have my own life to live. I'll give Jesus some attention. I'll give Jesus a part of my life. I'll give Jesus some of what he asks for. That falls short of discipleship. Discipleship demands daily deference every day that's why the apostle paul wrote i i daily discipleship demands denial if any man will come after me let him deny himself as i look at the culture around me i see a culture that struggles to say no to self we live in a society that actually preaches. You need to say yes to yourself before you say yes to anyone else. You need to look out for number one first, and that's you, before anything else. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus did not say, if any man will come after me, let him make sure he's all good and ready to go first. Let him deny. Have you learned to say no to yourself? And I don't mean, you know, say no to dessert. I don't mean say no to the fourth cup of coffee. I don't mean say no to the twelfth Mountain Dew of the day or the sweet tea. Have you learned to tell your flesh no? Have you learned to say, no, I'm not going to do that, even though it might be okay to do, because I am deferring to Jesus. Do you remember when Satan showed up to tempt Jesus? Jesus had gone 40 days and nights without eating, and Satan showed up and said, command that the stone be made bread. Hey, I don't know about you, but after 40 days of hunger, that sounds really good to me. I haven't eaten since last night, and it sounds good to me. And what did Jesus say? No. And understand, Jesus wasn't just saying no to Satan. Jesus was saying no to somebody else. Who was that? Himself. He was hungry. <laughs> you better believe it. He said no. Why? Because God had another plan. Have you learned to say no to yourself? And then notice this. Discipleship demands death. Take up his cross. What is the cross? It's an instrument of death painful death at that 
perhaps the best example of a discipleship verse in the Word of God is Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, where Paul wrote, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I haven't died physically. I'm still alive physically. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I. My physical life isn't about me or for me. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice, Paul even ties it to who he is, the Son of God, and what he's done, who loved me and gave himself for me. I'm crucified with Christ. I die daily. I have died to self. I'm still alive physically, but this physical life isn't about me. It's not for me. It's not to look out for me, myself, and I. It's not to get what is coming to me and hold it to myself. My life is about Jesus living his life in and through me. That's what it's about. If I can borrow from Pastor Kyle again, tell me, are you a fan or a follower? What distinguishes the, the two? Discipleship, commitment of life, being fully committed to Jesus. Are you? Is your life Jesus and no less how committed are you can you sincerely and honestly step back And listen to what Jesus said and say, yes, that right there tells the story of my life. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily. And follow me. I have a lot more to get to, but I'm not going to get to it this morning. For right now, let's leave it there with this question. If you were to simply look at what Jesus said, take away the, well, I go to church. Well, I, I give. Well, I talk about Jesus from time to time. I have the Jesus sticker on my car. Everybody sees it. I own six Bibles. And those are just mine. There's 12 others at home, too. Take away all of that. And leave it with just what Jesus said. If Jesus were to sit down with you 
with me and he were to have a conversation to talk about what your relationship is. We use this technical term for it, define the relationship. What is this relationship going to be? What's it going to look like? What kind of an impact is it going to have? What's the give and take going to be? Where are we going with this? If Jesus were to sit down with me today and say, Mike, let's define this relationship. Let's talk about what this relationship is going to be. And I were to say, yes, Jesus. Jesus, here's what I want my relationship with you to be. I want you to be my Savior first and foremost. I want to know that my sins are forgiven, that I'm redeemed and on my way to heaven for eternity. But then, Jesus, beyond that, I want to be a disciple. And Jesus were to look back at me as he would, and he say, okay, Mike, well, here's what that means then. Here's what discipleship means. You, you can't just say, I'm your Savior. You can't just say, yes, he's the Lord. Mike, it, it's got to be evidenced in your life. You can't just call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say. I've got to see it in your life. And then, Mike, let me tell you this, too. If if I'm going to be that to you, and you're going to be a disciple, a fully committed follower of Jesus, that needs to be your desire above everything else. It can't be second place to anything ever. It can't be second place to your flesh. It can't be second place to some other relationship. It can't be second place to what you have and what you're going after in this life. It has to be what you desire above everything else at all times. And Mike, that means there are going to be times where you're going to have to defer to me. In fact, you may have to daily. There are going to be times where what you may want will be different than what I want for you in that moment at that time. Mike, there may be things I allow into your life that you don't want, that you beg me to take away, but I'm going to leave them there to show you that my grace is sufficient, my strength is made perfect in weakness. There are going to be things you're going to want out of life. You're going to want comfort and convenience But Mike, that's not what discipleship is all about. I'm not looking to give you a comfortable life. I'm not looking to to help make this your best life now or anything like that, Mike. That's not what discipleship is about. There are going to be times regularly you're going to have to defer to me. And that might mean you're going to be uncomfortable. It might not be convenient. It might not be the easy road or the easy thing to do. In fact, there are going to be times it'll be a hard road the hardest thing to do there are going to be times people out there won't understand maybe even other Christians won't understand but you're going to have to trust me and defer to me Mike along with that you're going to have to say no to yourself a lot you can't just give in to every whim and wish you're going to have to learn to tell yourself no and then follow through 
and then Mike. If that weren't enough, you need to pick up your own cross. Mike, Mike, you remember how I was beaten? Crown of thorns was thrust into my skull. The blood poured down my face. They, they took that cat of nine tails and they beat me so severely you could not even recognize who I was or even that I was a man. And then they put the cross on my shoulder and led me to the place of execution. They nailed me to the cross. And there I suffered and bled and died for you. Mike, do you remember that? Yeah, Jesus, I do. It's your turn to pick up your cross. Follow me. Jesus, does that mean I'm going to have to go through that pain exactly like you did? No, Mike, that sacrifice was sufficient to take care of your sin. That's done. But it, it, it will cost you something. In fact, ha have you ever seen that time where someone started to build a house and didn't count and didn't end up having sufficient funds to finish it? Yeah, I've seen that, Lord. Well, that's what discipleship can be like. People get started, but then they realize how much it really costs they throw in the towel, they give up. Mike, if you're really going to be a disciple, you need to be fully committed even to that point. Mike, let's just say it this way, you need to die to yourself. You need to, in a, in a figurative sense, nail Mike to the cross so that my resurrected life becomes yours. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. Why? Because Christ, who is your life, he is my life. He is my life. I have no life apart from him. The real question is, does my life actually evidence that? Because like it or not, I am crucified with Christ. The old man is crucified, Romans chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. 5, excuse me. That old man is crucified. Are you fully committed? follower of Jesus. I think we're going to get back to this tonight. And maybe it's convicting. It is to me. In fact, what we'll see in verses 24 through 27 is Jesus go is going to share three errors that people who are well-intended often make in the realm of discipleship. And then even further on in Luke chapter 9, He's going to return to the theme and give us three examples of people who had the potential of discipleship, like every man does, and fell short. Right now, you can just begin answering, am I a fully committed follower? Not based on all my 
thoughts about what that means, but what Jesus said right here. 